right, you guys. Hello. I'm here with Greg Little, or Greg L. Little, because if you just put Greg Little, you get all kinds of other things in uh, Google. Um, and he's an author and a researcher, and he it, he just got done, well, his latest book is is this your latest book? I think it is, right? Yeah, the latest one in that sort of genre. Yeah, yeah. I put out a lot of books. So I, yeah, I, that's yeah, the latest your Amazon one is in impressive. that genre. Well, yeah. they don't even have, a lot of ours have restricted circulation. I got about 30 books that have restricted circulation only to professionals. So uh, professionals in the mental health field, criminal justice, that kind of stuff. So they have a restricted circulation. So they're not on Amazon. You can sometimes find some used ones there uh, that some clients have put up or other professionals have their used copy. But no, we don't. Most of it, we don't actually sell on Amazon or any stores. We don't book anything in stores. Is that, all, is that like a publisher? Which is odd. Or is that just? Uh, it, it is a, it's a distribution contract in the uh, field of mental health, mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, criminal treatment. And that's really my background. I'm uh, technically, I'm a criminal psychologist. I am retired in real one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I don't do any one-on-one -on -one stuff at all. Haven't done that in years. Uh, I'm involved in some training and things like that uh, for um, mental health and criminal justice professionals. And so that's my real career. The rest of this is just what we would call a ghost hobby, but it's more than a hobby. It's a, it's, it's pretty much a professional thing. So I've been doing this for a long time, since the eighties, 86 is when my first book came out. And then I just started doing them. So, yeah, you're the premier expert on the mounds. So you have that. And then your your Atlanta studies. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the, then now the Atlanta stuff, I want to say the Atlanta stuff was a really it was underwater research. We did a lot of underwater exploring, went to sites in the Yucatan, in Yucatan and Guatemala, really very remote, very dangerous places. And we did like they did in the 1800s, where a couple of. uh European-based people or people like us would hire a large group to take us into a really remote area. Uh, and we did that, uh, made some films about it, did a number of documentaries on it. And uh, the stuff in the, the stuff for the Atlantis search was 25 weeks in the Bahamas, looking underwater, exploring all over the place, looking for any archaeological ruins at all, and trying to solve some long-term mysteries that began in the 60s and the 70s. And we did solve all the mysteries that we were looking for, and then we got led to other things there like underwater stone structures. And so we really got into doing that. We never found anything that we can attribute to Atlantis, but technically it was this search for Atlantis project. And that was the uh, name that we used. We had archeological permits and all that, but we did find 31 crash planes, including three that were Bermuda Triangle planes, not, not yeah. flight 19, but we did find three Bermuda Triangle planes. So yeah, that we've done a lot. The mound stuff I got into in 1983, uh, did a uh, encyclopedia in that that initially came out in 2009. We did a large revision and update in 2016. And that has been something that I've been deeply involved in since the 80s. Uh, I've probably spent more time in the mound research really than I have in my profession. So <laughs> Uh, that's, that's probably, uh, well, that's, that's true. No doubt about it. But my profession has given me the ability to travel pretty much go and do whatever I want to do. So that's good. Great too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Regarding the mounds real quick, I have a couple of questions that I wrote down or that my, that, that one of my friends really wanted me to ask you particularly about the mounds, Joshua McGraw. He's the one who connected us. He's saying, okay, so where in the historical record is there, is there unit of measurement? And then uh, did they know the Pythagorean theorem? And then where did they learn the advanced surveying technology or techniques? Um, and then where in the historical record is their numerical system? Wow. Okay. So yeah. in the, <laughs> that, that is, uh, that's a, a, a lot of questions that I'm sure as I get into this, I'll forget some of them, which is actually convenient. If I don't know, I, I just forget, but no, that's, <laughs> that's not true. Anyway, um, uh, they did have a counting system, obviously. That is in the historical record. Uh, they used, uh, for permanent records, they made, they used uh, beading. 
there were other methods that they used, but they actually had, you'd see wampum belts and so on. And those usually tell stories. Uh, they, the beads that are put in that is a counting system and a number system. Uh, and we know they had that. Uh, they had weights and measures. Uh, we've known that for a long time. Some of the mounds, such as the Watson Break Mounds near Poverty Point, Louisiana, in Watson, Watson Break, they found a cube about nine inches by nine inches. And the cube was made out of smaller cubes. And the smaller cubes were all a, a little bigger than a dice would be, a single die. Uh, very, you know, like a real cube. And then they it's had stone? these cubes. Stone or... uh, th they are a type of uh, fired clay. So it's as hard as rock. But they have designs on them and they actually look like large dice. And so the cube was nine by nine by nine uh, to make this. And they believe what they believe is these were all used for measuring measurements and weights that it would be a counterbalance. How many cubes they would need to counterbalance out maybe corn or maybe uh, crystals or something, something that they valued. So we know that. Um, what were the other so i've given you the the, the numbers and the, okay how did they get the knowledge yeah the, the the knowledge okay so where did the knowledge come from uh i don't know I, I i really don't know i mean some people say it's ancient aliens i don't believe that i don't believe that all the ancient knowledge came from ancient aliens although i do believe that there were aliens that have visited this planet that is a, a another story but not to the extent that the ancient aliens proponents will tell you. They'll tell you that everything came from ancient aliens. And I don't believe that. I know Andrew doesn't believe that. But we know we are we are 99 point, and then just put a string of nines as long as you can, certain that there were aliens who visited Earth. And what really pushed us over to totally accept the ancient aliens idea that they were here was Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was the greatest skeptic of all time, an astronomer who was active in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, Carl Sagan wrote a paper in the 60s in a scientific journal wherein he said that it was an absolute certainty that aliens had visited Earth. They started probably, he said, around 2 million years ago. And they made from that 2 million time period up to pretty much the present, they probably made 10 thousand visits 10,000 now that sounds like a lot but it's not over two million years that's one visit every 200 years that's all it is so it's not like they're here all the time and that that's pretty much what Andrew and I believe so, so I don't believe that the Native Americans or any of the ancient cultures at least here got their knowledge from the ancient aliens so what the what the natives themselves have said, what the shaman and the medicine men have said about their knowledge, they say that came from the spiritual world, that there were entities, in fact, in some cases, there were entities that literally gave them the knowledge, told them things. Now, I know that archaeologists have worked out various ways using a like a central stake and then a long rope to make the circles, the geometric earthworks, uh, the alignments to the sun and the moon, particularly the moon's alignments, it takes 18.61 years to try and get a full representation of the moon's basic cycle. The moon doesn't, re it repeats itself and its movements precisely every 18.61 years. So there are mound sites in North America uh, Ohio is is the place where most of them are, although they are elsewhere. And what these mound sites do, linear lines of Earth, which can sometimes be made into circles, squares, octagons, various other formations. And those, in fact, do precisely point to the moon's movements at, during the 18.61 year cycle. Now in the book, what I wrote about that was that obviously some shame, or you still call a shame, shame but some of them uh, obviously were 
at these sites for 18.61 years to lay this thing out and, and say, put a marker there, put a marker there, put a marker there. We know that the, these huge earthen earthworks, which are 10, 16, 20 feet tall, often there's a moat around them. And then there are interior mounds that were used where you'd stand on one mound, you could look through an opening in the earthwork and you could see the moons, the moons setting or on the horizon at a very specific time of the year during that 18.61 years to make to validate the thing it took another 18.61 years. Somebody had to sit there and watch this thing as it moved night to night to validate that in fact it is uh, exactly where it needs to be. So where that knowledge came from, um, they say it was the spirits and the gods. Uh, they didn't use the term God, but it had to do with the great spirit and all the lesser spiritual powers that they got it from them. Nowhere in the old eth ethnological literature is it said that, that the Native Americans got their knowledge from aliens. And when I say aliens, like a some sort of a craft comes down and beings come out and then instruct them. That is not to be found anywhere in the ethnographic literature that was done in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and even 1900s with the shaman and with the medicine men. And there's a huge amount of information there that we have. So they got the knowledge from, they either worked it out on their own uh, or uh, it came from where they said it came from. And that is from the spiritual world. It's the yeah. same place in the book where I said their, their knowledge of medicine came from. The, the Smithsonian's ethnographers that went there in the 1800s and interviewed them, uh, we're talking about mainly the Zuni tribe and the uh, Navajos, but they went there and they found hundreds of these plant substances that were very effective medicines. They literally sent those samples off to the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian had them analyzed and some of our modern medicines come from that early research. But, the, but in the Smithsonian publications, they say, oh, they worked it all out by trial and error. It's all trial and error. But the shaman themselves all said the same thing. And that is the spiritual world told us and really, that is what this new book with Andrew is all about, the spiritual world interacting with us. So did well, I answer them all? Yeah, yes, yes. And more. Uh, so like, let's go, let's go super macro and then reverse engineer it. Okay. So like what I really liked about um, your, your book is, well, the concept that the Native Americans talk about the singularity and then how, you know, it would break out into the three worlds, uh, yep. the upper, the lower and the middle. So walk people through the cosmology of of your understanding of what mo most like Native Americans had, and then we can kind of All right. divide uh, the trickster out of that. Okay, it is to me uh, amazing. I'm I'm I remain amazed at this belief system. And back when, like when I started the Mound Encyclopedia in the '80s, I had no idea. Uh, I didn't know in the '90s. I really didn't know in the early 2000s. But in around 2004, or so I started picking up on this, and there was research being done in it. So anyway, here's the bottom line: uh, there are two types of literature uh, about legends and mythology in the Native American tradition. One of those are called commonplace myths and commonplace legends, and those are basically children's stories they are it's what's most widely available they're stories about animals about coyotes about uh, other ants the spider about how the world formed and how a chief and his wife were in the sky and they pulled a tree up and a big hole appeared and the wife shoves her husband through and then she comes down to earth and all those are kids stories they all teach morals right and wrong stories about animals and trapping and basics of living. That's what those are for. Then the second type of knowledge is sacred knowledge. Sacred knowledge was kept hidden. Uh, there were some groups that did eventually reveal the sacred knowledge, and the sacred knowledge is where all this comes from. So it's not real common. Most people don't know about this. So they say they have a story of cosmology about how the universe began, and they said it began with a singularity. And I didn't, I'm not making that term up or translating theirs into our language. That is the term the ethnographers used. And that is the term they got from the Native Americans that told them this story, the shaman. And so it was a singularity. It was made 
of it was basically a pure point of spiritual energy. That's what it was, a pure point of spiritual energy. For some reason, this is never given in any of the literature. We don't we don't know what the reason is. But for some reason, this pure point of spiritual energy began to churn in itself. And in this churning, it created two opposite forces. If you can visualize the yin and yang symbol, like a circle with two connect two parts that connect in it and then it rotates, it's like, okay, that's it. That's what it that's what it was. It was like the yin and the yang. Well, you can't have a, cir- a, a singularity made of two parts. It's a contradiction in terms. So the exact moment that these two opposing forces in balance began to exist, it created what physics calls the Big Bang. And now the Zuni described this as it started out as a container of all. That is the exact translation. It was a container of all. Everything was in this point. And then it thought outward it thought outward that's how the zuni described it but it's like the big bang so everything in the universe was created from this and therefore everything in the universe has a spiritual nature the essence of everything whether it's physical or non-physical is spirituality it's all spirit so what happened when it thought outward what happened when this big bang occurred it created a three-part universe. Two of the parts have to do with those two forces that were that actually created the Big Bang, the two forces that were in the singularity initially that developed. So one of those is called the upper world in, their, in both commonplace myths and in their uh, sacred knowledge. And the other one is called the underworld, which again is what they term in both types of mythology. In the middle is the middle world, the physical universe or the physical world. So here's, here's how it works. The middle world uh, is, was created to allow the force of the upper world and the lower world to stay in balance. So we'll talk about the upper world first. The upper world is the force of creation. The upper world is creation. And what it's doing is it's taking things, pieces of spiritual energy and matter which is still spiritual energy and it puts them together in unique ways it creates things it has representatives in the upper world animal representatives one of those is like an eagle virtually all of the raptor birds that fly high in the sky all of them were seen as forces of the upper world as was the sun every day it was very orderly creation is also about orderliness it's an orderly universe On the other hand, the lower world is the spirit of disorder, and it's the spirit in physics of entropy. Entropy is a physics term that means everything eventually begins to degrade, fall apart, and go to its most primordial state the moment it's created. So from the moment anything's created, it begins to basically disintegrate again. Now, that process can take a very long time or very short time. So you have the lower world, it has animals that represent it too. Sometimes they're beneath the surface, like fish, water monsters are a part of it. And and animals that actually live in the earth are often representatives of the lower world. So you have the, the middle world, which is us, where we live in the physical universe. The middle world was created as a double-sided three-dimensional mirror. What that means is this. The, the physical world is, a th- is three-dimensional. We all know that. Everything has, uh, it has height, it has width, uh, and it has depth. It has all three. So we have these three dimensions. Add time to it, and you've got the four dimensions that we know about. So that is the three-dimensional world with time laying on top of it. So the two forces, the upper world and the lower world, reflect on this double mirror. Their forces constantly reflect on this double mirror to remain in balance. The middle world existed. The physical world came into existence to allow these two spiritual forces to interact. And this is the place of interaction. And on this place, we were sent humans humans here were tasked with maintaining harmony and maintaining balance in this so the rituals they perform 
the mounds they made, the various geometric earthworks that were, were, were built for these rituals, all of that is in this spirit of harmonizing with these two forces. And all the rituals could, the rituals were intended to interact with, directly interact with the spirits of the upper world, or in some cases, the spirits of the lower world. So that's kind of a summary of their cosmology. Uh, the, the human soul comes and goes. The human soul is basically, they called it a free soul. It's trapped within the body. The body being physical matter uh, is has its own animating force. That's called the life soul. Uh, this explains a lot of their burial practices about why most people were cremated. Some, however, if they were in the elite, if they were important medicine uh, men or women or shaman, sometimes those bodies were mummified and put in really elaborate tombs with the hope that the soul, the free soul that left that body at death would return and reanimate that same physical body so the same person could come back. Uh, the Egyptians did the same thing. So that's kind of a summary of the cosmology. I love that. And um, and then and then I think the other element that you added into was uh, Edward Casey's perspective on, I have this quote written down, which I, I think the purpose of life, God's desire for companionship and expression. If you did have a singularity and it broke, like why did it decide to break a fragment at all? And I think that that is kind of a good uh, like segue into how like his perspective on what he what he understood why there was fragmentation at all. Yeah, well, interest. There's a song. One is the loneliest number. So if you're a singularity, you know, you yeah. got nothing to do. You have nothing to do. There's no there's no purpose. And I'm I'm one who believes in the um, cycling universe that it it blows out and eventually it all comes back and it just keeps going over and over. And it's a long period of time from our perspective, but it really isn't long. And I, I ask people a simple question all the time. Uh, you were born back some years ago and you can remember that. And you know, time kind of drags on some days and goes fast. But if you uh, think for a minute, well, they tell us the universe is 14 billion years old now. How fast did that first 14 billion go for you? Yeah. yeah. It was gone. Uh, so, you know, it's time. Time is a perspective here. I won't. That, that's a whole deep thing we could get into. But and I didn't mean to sidetrack you there. No. Uh, but, yeah. Casey did say that it that it God wanted. Yeah. God wanted companionship, uh, wanted to interact and I suppose manifest. And if you have creation, if you're going to have creation, it seems to me that you need something to break it down so you can keep creating. If you create something and you never break it down, well, it can only be done one time. So creation and entropy working together, which is how the universe works, uh, keeps it going, keeps creating new stuff, keeps evolving. Uh, and that's what's going on. And I think eventually it evolves back to the beginning. But anyway, okay. Yeah, I do too. I think I, I, I agree with that. Okay, so I really liked your your time, your T-I-I-M-E uh, yeah. explanation. It's temp okay, temporal intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy so basically we you know we have a lot of paranormal experiences people see beings people see ufos people see ghosts people see these things and by the way i want to get into the marfa lights because i've totally seen the marfa lights and that's the first thing i thought of when i thought of the plasma thing but i like how you're defining it all as the commonality and all this is the you know the non-repeatable just temporary existence of it so yeah. So how do you like, what do you think the role of, of that is within the reality? Well, I think that's the, that is the primary explanation of the entire paranormal field of UFOs, UFO abductions, uh, the tales of the contactees, the early tales of the contactees. Uh, in the book, I mentioned Edgar Casey. I also mentioned um, Joan of Arc and her visions. Uh, which were not visions like mo most people only know about the movies about Joan of Arc. They never really read much about her. Uh, and it, it's really an astonishing story. But all of those things, I believe, are explained by this time thing. Uh, I believe that the 
the manifesting energy in it is plasma based. Uh, and that's just the energy that is used. It's not necessarily the uh, intelligent entities or force or whatever you want to call it behind it. So the yes, it's transient intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. Uh, you never have heard somebody say, you don't ever see this report. A UFO lands in some farmer's backyard, you know, and he goes outside and he bangs on it and so on. And aliens come out and, and tell him, yeah, invite all your friends over. You know, you don't hear that. He gets on the phone and everybody, and they go out and they bang on the side. You know, you don't hear that. It's always temporary. It's always an intrusion in a small area. Never lasts very long. Same thing with abductions. It, it, it appears to some people to last a long time, uh, but it's always temporary. And it's an intrusion into normal reality. It is. In, it has intelligence. Whatever it is has sentience. Uh, it has a form of intelligence and consciousness, and there's some purpose to it. And it's a manifestation of energy. It's manifesting energy. There is some energy coming from somewhere. Andrew and I both are firmly convinced it's plasma-based energy. Uh, plasma, we haven't discussed, but plasma is the fourth state of matter. Uh, you have solids, liquids, gases, and plasma. Plasma is exceedingly unique. It's a fascinating thing, but we believe that's the energy that is used, but that's not necessarily what the, the intelligence itself is, although it might be. That's another story. So uh, hopefully I answered that. I'm not sure I did. But, yeah, well, uh, I mean, like, I, 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 I sometimes I think, um, you, you know, like, okay, if, if the force phase, fourth phase of matter is actually the, the medium in which maybe consciousness itself or the singularity itself is using to convene with this middle world, you, you know, like maybe uh, that's what's going on sort of situation. So when I went to Marfa and I, and I saw some, I've been to Marfa lots and one of the times I literally saw a, a shooting star come down and like join the lights. And it was with the Marfa lights dancing wow. with them. And I was like, what? We were all like, whoa. I filmed as best as I could, but it, um, you can hear us all screaming about it, but it was, and I don't, I don't know if I actually got the shooting star as it came down to mess with the actual Marfa lights. Yeah. I mean, the Marfa lights was one of those that like super tricked me out. But then even stories about when I was there, like one, there, one, one of the locals told me that she went to get in her car in the morning and there was like a big, like yellow light sitting in the driver's seat. And she was just like, oh, uh, you know, okay. So, and she like drove and it just stayed stationary as she went past, but she said it like a lot of people describe it as having it, the light itself or like the plasma itself has an intelligence. Like it is a being in and of itself. Yes. Well, yeah. Physicists tell us it has an intelligence. Uh, uh, Marfa is a very cool place. I've been there. Um, I think I spent four nights there. Andrew Collins was with us when we were there. Uh, we got some great film too of lights. I'm not of uh, not the lights on the roadway off in the distance. You, know, you see cars on the mountain in the distance. Not those, but lights down there. Uh, I'm not sure that that's what they were. It's possible, but we don't know. But Marfa clearly is a portal site. Marfa is a place where the underground geology is such that it helps these plasma-based entities manifest. And that's what that's what portal areas are all about or windows, depends on what you want to call them. A lot of consistent UFO sightings come in these places. Uh, but basically, it plasma can theoretically manifest anywhere, given the right conditions. Um, and yeah, it's the fourth state. Plasma is the fourth state of matter. Uh, it. Let me explain real quick. So the Earth generates electricity. The Earth generates its own electromagnetic field. Uh, it's at a very specific frequency. It's 7.61 hertz, I believe, 7.4. I don't remember. It's around 7 hertz. Anyway, uh, there's multiples of that too, but that's the primary. It's called the Schumann resonance. That's the primary uh, vibrational frequency of the Earth. So uh, as the Earth does this vibration, under the surface, there are uh, rocks of different kinds, the more crystalline the rock is, like granite is highly crystalline, and the more fractures in it, there's a buildup of pressure. It's called tectonic strain. It's where rocks are simply pushing together, and that generates electricity. Again, the more crystalline the structure is, the more electricity is generated. Well, that electricity has to go somewhere. 
and they're under some conditions, the electricity literally discharges into the air. And as it discharges, it can keep pulling more energy and it forms a plasma. The plasma is formed when the molecules of air, and again, all this is physical, you know, we're in an ocean here. We all are, we're in an ocean like fish, but it's an ocean of air. And right. there are molecules all around us here. Yeah, so air is not plas- nothing. Yeah, it's not nothing. It, 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 you know, we sense it is that way. There's nothing here, but it's just not very dense. So a plasma begins because of its superheated nature. It begins pulling off the electrons from the molecules. And the more it does that and the atoms, the more and more it becomes a superheated ball of electromagnetic energy that has electrons, ions, photons being sh- start shooting out of it. It forms different shapes uh, and it is physically real. It becomes physically real because of its electromagnetic nature, it can pull in dust. There is a term called dusty plasma. The first time I ever read that term was in the 2006 Project Condine report from the British Ministry of Defense. And in it, they said that a lot of the dusty plasmas were responsible for the pickup of UFOs on radar, that in fact, those were dusty plasmas. And it simply means that the plasma has pulled in so much matter, be it dust, cosmic dust, what we would normally call dust, it's been pulled into this ball of energy. And again, all the ions are ripped out of it. It is sending out radiation, it's highly magnetic uh, and, and superheated, but this ball can appear to be physically real. It forms into different shapes. And physicists, really starting in the 1950s, started suggesting if we could keep a plasma, keep feeding it energy, it would become alive. It would be alive like us. In fact, that's why it got the term plasma, because the way a plasma forms, it looks like a gigantic cell it looks just like a blood cell and as it it has an outer shell and inside of it there's a whole lot of stuff going on in there that is keeping it alive and so in 2006 2007 a group of physicists it was six physicists published in the journal um, uh, physics today it's a peer-reviewed journal and said that plasmas have all the characteristics of being alive, of evolution, and of interacting with us. Uh, They had a type of of a structure that formed in them that looks exactly like a double helix, DNA, the same thing that is within all of our cells except blood blood cells. Modern blood cells, our blood cells don't have DNA in them. People don't know that, but they don't have it. Uh, They're the only cells in the body that don't carry DNA. So anyway, um, they saw what looked like DNA, a double helix form in it. And they watched as the double helix split apart and duplicated itself, splits apart. RNA then takes it and duplicates it and creates new cells. That's how new cells duplicate in the human body. The exact same thing they witnessed, filmed, and so on uh, with the plasmas that they were forming in the laboratory. Uh, it's astonishing. They also saw what they called evolution. The ones that had the strong, a strong structure, like when the cell split, if you had one that formed that had a weak structure on the inside, it faded away and couldn't replicate. The ones that had a strong structure inside were able to replicate and they created even more strong ones after the fact. So that's exactly how evolution works. And in their paper, they said, These things look as if they're alive and given enough energy so they can sustain themselves long enough. Chances are we could interact with them. And that is is absolutely astonishing. It's not a new form of life per se. It's probably something that has been here for all time. And Native Americans say that is the type of energy that they've been interacting with, that your mental state, this goes to UFOs, UFO abductions, paranormal investigations, ghost hunts, and all that, the intentions of the person, whatever's going on in your mind, when you get 
close to these forming plasmas, there is an interaction sphere that occurs. And in this interaction sphere, the plasma is interacting with your electromagnetic fields, which are being created by your brain chemistry. And when I say brain chemistry, I mean the, there is a lot of, it, it's not really electrical, it's bioelectrical activity going on in the brain. And it creates an electromagnetic field. So the, the plasmas are interacting with your intentions, your motivations, and your beliefs. And that, that is a really important piece to it because the Native Americans knew that and they made it an integral part of all their rituals that they performed to deliberately interact with these forces or entities or whatever you want to call them. And they believe you had to interact with them or bad things would happen, disruptive things. So they're like temporary thought forms, temporary like egregores that are manifested in a way. They're, they have, they exist in and of themselves. Okay. They're not being you're not, created. You're not, you're not creating them. You're creating them. You're just. No, we're not creating them. But what they are doing, this is where it gets astonishing. What they are doing is interacting with what our expectations are, what our cultural, what our culture is, what our cultural beliefs are, and what our basic beliefs are. They're interacting with us. So there's a, so when they interacted with um, Joan of Arc long, long ago, when they interacted with her, what she interacted with are traditionally seen as angels. She saw St. Catherine, St. Michael, thousands of other angels she saw. There was another witness, uh, by the way, who saw what she saw. That is in the written material at all. And they've had, the witness to that was actually uh, interviewed in the trial of Joan of Arc, and that's all in the record. Uh, so she saw something that was adapted to her belief system, her expectations and needs, which at the time, England had invaded France. France was in a very bad way, uh, and she came to the aid of France. Uh, now, she did more. She went beyond what they told her to do, and as she went beyond what they told her to do, it began to backfire and it, eventually it cost her her life. That's where the trickster element comes into this. Uh, so, and Edgar Casey, I mentioned Casey. Casey had two interactions with what he described as an angel. Both of those started out with a big ball of light. Same as Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc saw a big ball of light. That's what she saw initially. Edgar Casey had first time he saw a ball of light in his bedroom. The second time he was actually outside on a farm and he was working on a car and a ball of light formed behind him. And both times the angel interacted with him. And the first time uh, it was about telling him that he was going to be involved with healing and helping people. That, that is what he was told. The second time that he interacted with it, it was about the need for him to go ahead and go away from the farm and go to Hopkins, move into town in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Uh, so as long as people follow, as long as you're harmonizing with it and you basically follow the instructions, it's usually a pretty good experience. But most people aren't ready for it. Uh, people, uh, I've got to talk to Whitley Strieber next week. Uh, Whitley has been a friend of mine for quite a few years now. I've been on his show numerous times. Uh, uh, Whitley's kind of come over to this whole belief system too. Uh, in that the the entities that we see as aliens appear as aliens because the people that they're appearing to already have that idea in their mind. So these time beings, T-I-I-M-E, these time entities or time beings are adjusting their physical shape and appearance and their interaction to the individual that they're appearing to or to the group that they're appearing to. So, so in ancient times, they had angels. Today, we don't. Right, or fairies or elves kind of thing at one yes, point. Yes, exactly. In your book, you talk about um, the electrolyte spectrum and about how like, you know, there's our visual light spectrum is very limited. So do you think that yes. these things are constantly in existence and then they're just, whenever they feel the need to relay a message or somehow help evolve us spiritually enough to become the company that the source would like to have at, at one point, then they like figure out a way to manifest themselves. Like they're always in existence, but they just temporarily manifest themselves for a second. 
I don't know if it's worth uh, it. I think that, that that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, that that's an excellent question. So the answer is uh, two answers. One is yes, I think that these are um, manifesting around us all the time. Um, and our eyes, people just don't understand this. And the back of our eyes has the retina and the retina has millions of tiny little cells that one end of the cell is really sticking out. It's exposed in the retina. And what that cell is, uh, is an antenna. It's an antenna. It's just like a radio. It's a radio antenna. That's exactly what it is. But there's millions of them. There's two different types. One we call rods, one we call cones. The rods, the rods uh, pick up black and white color, uh, which is a type of color, blacks of color. And the cones pick up all other colors. So those are antenna. There's groups of these antennas in our eyes. They go back to the optic. Uh, they go back the optic nerve, reach the occipital cortex, the visual cortex, and that's where we see. Uh, so the rods and the cones are tuned, just like a radio. If you take a regular radio and you start changing the channel, what you're doing is you're tuning it to pick up a very specific frequency in the electromagnetic energy spectrum. That's what you're doing. So the rods and the cones are tuned to a very, in our eyes, are tuned to a very narrow, narrow spectrum of the, of the whole EM or electromagnetic energy spectrum. Visible light is right in the middle. It makes up roughly 4.7 to 5% of the entire EM spectrum. That you go be. two ways with this. One way goes all the way to cosmic rays. The other goes down to what's called very, very low frequency waves, uh, which is a type of radio wave. The U.S. Navy uses that to communicate with submarines because those very low frequency waves travel through water extremely well. Uh, so it goes both ways. And uh, toward the lower end is where you have TV, you have regular radio, you have cell phones and all that. Uh, you go a little toward, you get to infrared, then you get to visible light, you have ultraviolet, and it goes on up to cosmic rays, which is radiation. That's what we call it. But all of that's part of the electromagnetic energy spectrum. The universe is filled with it. If our eyes, if the rods and the cones were tuned to pick it all up, you wouldn't see anything but constant moving stuff. You'd yeah. see lights and waves moving constantly, but you wouldn't be able to see any physical objects because it would all be blotted out by the constant electromagnetic waves around us all the time. So yeah, I think that there, prob that there probably are some here uh, all the time that are in various places. I think some animals, so animals that can see infrared, for example, uh, heat signatures, uh, owls, good example, owls can see infrared. Owls can sit in the top of a tree and they can watch rats and mice and rabbits and so on run around because they're putting off a heat signature, which is infrared light. That's what owls are seeing. I believe on some circumstances, humans, uh, the frequency of our rods and cones are changed. There are some drugs that probably do that, but that's beyond what we, what we really want to go to here. Uh, so yeah, I think it's all the time, but I think there's something more profound going on. So there's naturalistic stuff going on all the time where this is this, these electromagnetic energy forms, which are manifesting through plasma are popping in and out of existence around this pretty often. There are places, however, where they come very frequently because of the underground geology and the movement of water through that geology, which produces even more electricity and energy really sustains it. Uh, even psycho neuropsychologists and geologists who have studied this have said repeatedly, they believe that ha haunted houses that have a history for, say, hundreds of years of having manifestations in them, they believe those houses were inadvertently built right on the top of a portal, an area where these energies are constantly coming out or emerging from the subsurface area. They're emerging in this structure over and over. So people see it as being a paranormal hotspot. Uh, so yeah, is maybe, that, I don't know. That, yeah, and maybe the plasma, ahead. I mean, maybe it, it's like earth consciousness itself if it's coming at stress points of portal areas. That's a really good, good idea. Remember all things, the Native American idea, all things are spiritual energy. The earth is a living spiritual entity according to them. And I believe it probably is too. Uh, I believe the sun is a 
it had and when i say living um I, I I mean, it's alive. It probably has a type of sentience. Uh, it probably has some sort of conscious awareness, but it's it's beyond this. Even like Native Americans never really describe uh, the great spirit. They, they don't really describe it because it's indescribable. We cannot understand the motivations of it. And that's what they said repeatedly in their cosmology. It's like, for whatever reason, it developed these two forces. You know, it was a singularity. It developed these two forces. We don't know why. We, you know, we're clueless about that. But it had a desire to manifest, so it did. Uh, and that's about as far as they as they got with it. And I think that's about as far as I can get with it. I yeah. don't understand what its purpose would be. Yeah, it's beyond me. I, I mean, like, I, I like in some kind of way. I don't know that we, even if we hit on it right now, like if we were like we said the thing, we wouldn't have a way of yeah. it being validated. You know, so it's like hard yeah, to really know. know. Yeah, we wouldn't know. So, I mean, right. okay, so so that was like deep for a first <laughs> meeting. Hello, that was some deep stuff. But, um, okay, so then just a couple of questions why I have the mound expert with me. I want to go on. Uh, okay, so, so they make these to like track celestial alignment. Are we looking at what would have been there? Or would they have had other structural things on there? Like what like did was it really just earthworks or are we talking about like there's a whole other stone and, and wood stuff that's been removed or do we know? Okay. Well, we do know in a lot of cases. Uh some of the some of these sites, Cahokia, Illinois, for example, yeah. was a city. Cahokia has more mounds in it than all of Egypt has pyramids. This one site in Illinois, which is across from St. Louis, it's near East St. Louis, Illinois. Um, Cahokia had 120 mounds. Its largest mound is called Monk's Mound. Monk's Mound is a it's as tall as a 10-story building. It's 100 feet high. Its base is bigger than the Great Pyramid at Giza. Right. Uh, again, 120 mounds. Well, Cahokia was a city. It was a massive fortress. It had walls around it, wooden walls, 50 feet high. Uh, when you go onto the top of the big mound, which is called Monk's Mound, because a monk lived there for a while, uh, it had a gigantic temple structure at the top, which, of course, it's a perishable structure. A wooden structure in archaeology is a perishable structure. It means it's not going to last thousands of years. So, no. Those were destroyed, but but probably at Cahokia, there were 30, 40, 50 mounds that had wooden structures on the top or temples. There is at the base of the large mound at Cahokia, base of Monk's Mound, there is a giant stone structure that was discovered in the 1990s inadvertently from a drilling project. Uh, it's never been entered, but it's roughly 75 feet by 45 feet by 30 feet high a gigantic stone structure at the base of this mound. Never been gone into, will not within our lifetime, probably never, but who, never is a long time. So I don't know, but no, no one plans on going in there now. So uh, in America, we probably had a million mounds or more uh, when the first Europeans came in, easily a million. There were probably 50,000 what are called platform mounds. Platform mounds are basically pyramid shaped. They have a square or rectangular base. Uh, some of them, like at Cahokia, they go up 100 feet. There are others that went up 68, 70, 87 feet, 90 feet. And then they have a flat top. So it's called a truncated pyramid. Truncated means flat top. Right. So on the tops of all those were structures. The platform mounds all had structures. And in those structures, the elite lived, either the shaman, the medicine men and women, the chiefs, the chiefs entourage, other main leaders would live in those structures. And then surrounding the site would be all the rest of the populace. Cahokia easily had 50,000 people living in it in the year 1400, easily 50,000 people. So there are lots of other cities throughout North America. When I call, say cities, there were lots of cities that were around at the time that Columbus first arrived in the Bahamas. Columbus never got to North America, except in the Bahamas and, and Cuba. Uh, but in North America, thousands of these cities, populations 10,000, 
20,000, 25,000, 30,000. Uh, and we know now that there are at least 56 to 58 million people. That's the mi minimum estimate given that were here when Columbus got here in 1492. 56, 57 million people were already here. Probably it was 150 million because the estimates keep going up. That 50 million eggs at 57 million estimate was made in the 1980s, and now we know a lot more. So the mounds, all right, back to the mounds. The mounds were made for, yes, for the chiefs to live in, but there are many of these mound sites where they have arranged burial mounds in particular in sight lines to where you could stand at a chief's mound. You could look directly across the top of another mound that often had a huge pole driven right into the middle. So you could look right over the top of the pole and see a specific star set into the horizon or rise from the horizon on a set day of the year at a specific time. And that was a clue for rituals. That was that, that is what those were all about. So there are loads of sites, dozens and dozens still in existence that use the alignments of the mounds and the earthworks. Often they would put outer earthworks. In some cases, the walls would be 20 to 30 feet high and they would extend for miles and miles. There would be these gaps in these walls, a, a gap, an opening, and there would be a mound and from that mound, they would sight directly through that gap and they could see the horizon a certain time of the day, which was used for rituals. In a lot of the ritualistic sites, they did not build houses in there. The elite probably had some structures, again, on the top of the platform house, but they didn't allow the people to live there. But when you go to these sites today, you'll see a lot of woods, you'll see a lot of trees. You know, they always try to make it park-like. They didn't have that. They didn't have any trees on those mounds, none. They didn't have on the grounds, they didn't have trees growing around on the grounds. And there were no trees around in the horizon. They had a huge open area around all of these places. And they did that through burning. Uh, they burned everything to the ground, which they had techniques to do that, which is actually good for agriculture. And part of that was for two reasons. One is they wanted to have the unobstructed sight lines so they could watch from one mound across another, maybe through a gap in a wall, to see the star very clearly go down on the horizon. They didn't want trees blocking it. And the other thing was it allowed for agriculture closer to the main site where they lived. And the third thing was it allowed them to watch the area for invaders, for right. somebody coming who wasn't for, supposed to come. You know, right. I mean. They really cleared the area. People just. Yeah. Okay, so they talk about. Um, uh, like I've heard, um, I've heard a lot of like rumors or whatever about how there was giant bones or bones and like the six. So some of them are actually burial mounds. And then, yes. uh, yeah. And then like, I also find it weird how much of the mounds were just kind of, it doesn't really seem like with reason were just destroyed. And then I also want to know, I hear the mainstream tells me that they built them with baskets. They just took baskets of dirt and piled baskets and baskets and baskets of dirt. That seems a little, eh, I don't know how to think about that. Well, okay. So back in 2014, you probably haven't seen this when Andrew and I uh, did this book called Path of Souls. And it, the subtitle of it, it looks really okay, the, the subtitle says, the Native American death journey. Um, well, I can't read that myself. <laughs> Getting old here. Uh, path of, uh, Cygnus, Orion, the Milky Way, giant skeletons and mounds in the Smithsonian. So uh, you had uh, a bunch of questions there, how they built them. Well, mainstream archaeology, uh, many, many years ago when they started doing excavations into mounds, and they did the Smithsonian excavated around three to 5,000 mounds in the 1800s. Uh, since then, up till roughly 1989, they probably sponsored or had excavated another three to 5,000. There was a guy by the name of C.B. Moore who obliterated probably 10,000 mounds uh, before the Smithsonian got to it. 
during the Smithsonian's activities uh, in, the, in the late 1800s in their mound exploration project, uh, they uncovered in their, in their early explorations approximately 17 giant skeletons buried in tombs, usually they're stone tombs, inside of burial mounds. Uh, these giant skeletons, the largest that Andrew and I were able to uh, definitely confirm was about seven feet, eight inches in height. So, uh, so it would have been a person seven feet, eight inches tall. Uh, most of the others were roughly seven feet to that height, seven feet to seven feet eight. There were 17 of them. Since then, uh, since the Smithsonian did it, the Carnegie Institute, a number of universities, the University of Kentucky sponsored a number of these digs. Uh, there have been 20, 30, 40 more of these giant skeletons excavated. The last one that I know of was in 1974 at a place called Chickasaba, which is in uh, Blyville, Arkansas, near um, an old SAC Air Force base at Blyville. Um, and Chickasaba actually had loads and loads of seven to eight foot skeletons excavated from it. And archaeologists actually have looked at some of those bones and calculated the height. And yeah, there they were seven feet in height. So it's unusual. I did a statistical analysis of it in this book, Path of Souls. Um, and in that statistical analysis, it's one of today, it's one of every roughly 147,000 people is truly seven feet tall. One of every 147,000 people. That's not very many. I live in Memphis. Uh, we have a population in this immediate area of about a million. To my knowledge, there are three seven-footers here. And one of those is not from America. They're basketball. He's a basketball player, but that's it. Uh, it's actually very rare to have somebody that's really seven feet tall. And most NBA players, they say, are seven feet tall. They're not. They're 6'10", they're 6'11", uh, and they always fudge the height. That's one of the things that people fudge more than anything else. So statistically... In these burial mounds, there are way, way, way too many giant skeletons. Uh, and that led Andrew and I to do a book called Denisovan Origins, which came out uh, in 2019. I've got a copy somewhere here, but it was the, the book that we did before this new one. Uh, and in Denisovan Origins, we traced this newfound branch of humanity called the Denisovans who interacted with the, when I say interacted, they interbred with Neanderthals and then modern humans. Uh, and almost all of us have some Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA within us. And some areas have far more Denisovan DNA. Well, the Denisovans apparently were a group of exceptionally robust, physically large humans that died out roughly well, we don't know exactly, but uh, in Europe, they, they died out approximately 40, 50,000 years ago. But in the South Pacific, the Denisovans probably didn't die out till probably 20,000 years ago. But their ancestors made it to the Americas. Andrew and I believe they were the source of the Clovis culture in America. We also believe that they are the source of all of the myths that Native Americans had about giants you will find in Native American ethnological literature loads of mythology about giants. And the giants didn't come from the sky. The giants were physical beings. Uh, so we believe they were the Denisovan population. So yeah, there were giants in, the, in some of the mounds. Most mounds have never been excavated. Loads have been destroyed. There's easily 100,000 mounds left today. So I hope that explained it. I'm, uh, I go around yeah. a lot. I, Lots to throw in. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is this has been like really really great. So tell tell everybody how they can find you and next and like what your next big project is and all this good stuff. Give us your closing thoughts here. Uh, well, no, to find me, Google my name. That's the best thing. Put in Gregory. Gregory. Put my middle initial L Little. Gregory L Little. If you put Greg Little, you find football players. I don't know why there's a lot of football players that name Greg Little. Even high school players football players are more important than any. 
Yeah, us. Yeah. So anyway, Google my name, Gregory L. Little. Uh, you can find it all there. You'll find websites and whatever books or whatever, and, and contact information will be there. Uh, as far as uh, current project, I'm still uh, actively working on uh, books in my real field. Uh, I've just finished one up this week. I'm working on another one. And then the next book is on uh, rituals. So yeah, rituals and why and how they work. Uh, so on. So like that's what's coming. Next. Rituals or like Native American rituals? Uh, any rituals. Oh, okay. All right. Period. Uh, it'll have Native American in it, but um, any rituals, yeah. I'm looking forward to read that. That's going to be cool. Yeah, it's not gonna. It's not like a cookbook of how to, you know, or move this, or you know, do a sand painting and use this color and all that. Uh, not no, a spell it's, book. Not, it's not going to be that. It's it's going to be something. No, no, it's not a spell book. Uh, but they do have an effect. Rituals do have an effect. That's for certain. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the next one in all this weird stuff. Uh, not sure when. It'll be within a year, I'm sure. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, you're a very prolific writer, so I, I don't doubt it. And uh, are you done top. with your Atlanta searching? Or are you still going to be doing uh, Actually, there is supposed to be this month on the History Channel uh, a uh, update to a couple of the shows we did with the series called Mystery Quest. Uh, they have some new information that we gave them as far as being done. And that, that'll show sometime this month. We're not sure when, uh, but they, you know, they, they always need ma new material. Uh, and those original shows came out around 2012 or so. So they've updated it with stuff we found since then, but not entirely done just focused on other things and of course the pandemic i mean the bahamas were shut down travel was shut down for years so yeah uh we're not done it's just the lots of other things to do yeah yeah uh, and that stuff's exceedingly dangerous I, i'm 72 years old and that stuff going out in these boats doing those dives i did 200 dives alone which you're not supposed to do but i did uh, and it's dangerous. A lot of the stuff we did on land was dangerous. Um, we, my wife and I agree, we were really lucky sometimes uh, because of storms and uh, traveling in small boats through storms. Uh, and so it's just dangerous. So there you go, but we're not done. Well, that's really, really great. One more thing I had to ask real quick. So Hoven Wheat and like Chaco Canyon and stuff like that, I, uh, you talked a little bit about this at the very beginning of the book, and I, I forgot to ask you this, but okay, so the EMFs all around us, the soup of crap that we're always in now, especially, which is all, and it's exceedingly getting more and more and more. Um, yep. So do you think that that causes more, like, are, is this causing us to see more stuff because we're having more interactions with our, our the EMF field? or less like do you think I mean, but it is also interesting that when you go to these completely isolated like your cell phone doesn't work and you're grounded to the actual earth places you have way more of a different connection and that the people then would have thought differently than they think now because they would have had a completely different tapped and tuned in signature um yeah so do you think that things are amping up towards more apparitions or contacts or less Okay, so that that is a really good question too, and it is deep. So first of all, I recommend like to do rituals <laughs> or to interact with it. Go to places like Hoven Weep if you can, or Chaco, Can Chaco Canyon, or any place like that. But you got to get away from modern society. You have to get away from noise, and you have to get away from all the electromagnetic interference that's everywhere. So that's that is an answer to something you didn't really ask. But what you really ask is this. I think that what's happening with all this electromagnetic pollution that's everywhere, it's its called electrosmog in the medical literature. Yeah. Uh, I call it an electromagnetic cesspool. I think it's causing uh, disruptions with us. I think it's increasing the amount of stress and anxiety. I think mental it's uh, one, I think it's one of the, yeah, mental illness. I think it's one of the disruptions. It's disrupting the mental capacity of people who kind of live on an edge. They're on and they sit on a fence and it doesn't take much to push them from one side of the fence to the other. 
And so these disruptions are occurring that are causing things like increased ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactive active disorder, massive increases in anxiety. People are having more weird experiences. So I think it's causing disruptive experiences. Hmm. So in order to get away from the disruptive experiences, you have to ground yourself. And I, I talk about that term in the book repeatedly. It's not just physically grounding yourself in the dirt, but it's getting away from all this electromagnetic, man-made electromagnetic energy around us and immerse yourself in the Earth's ambient electromagnetic field, which is called the Schumann resonance, which helps you reach this state of theta. It gets you into the theta state. These good experiences come right at the cusp of of uh, beta to theta brain waves, and that's close to meditation. It's not in deep meditation, but it's right on the edge of it. That is where rituals work. That is where interact uh, good interactions come with these spiritual forces, whatever they may be. And they can't then you have to watch your motives. If your motives are not good, you're going to experience a trickster. We didn't talk about that. We don't have time for it. But if your motives are questionable, you're going to interact with a trickster. If your motives are pure, and the Native Americans knew this, they started out, they always expected a trickster to come first in their interactions with this stuff. But if, you're, if your motives are good and not selfish and are harmonious with nature, um, it increases the likelihood that you'll have a beneficial experience with uh, the entities that appear Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Greg. This was, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you. Loved it. All right. Take care. Okay. It's a pleasure. Okay. Bye. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. -bye.